John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. We are on our sixth word of Christ from the cross. As you may have noticed uh, from the Mark reading that we just read, Jesus hardly says anything when He's being accused of a bunch of lies. But He does say seven things in the four Gospels uh, to us. And we've tracked through now five of them and today is the sixth one. And it comes right after the fifth one that we read last week. If you'll look right here in John 19, we'll start with 28 and move to 30. After this, after the they crucified Him, divided His clothes, after He gave His mother to John to be taken care of, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His ghost or His spirit. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for the sacrifice that You made for us. Help us in the next few moments as we contemplate Your Word. May You charge us in this service with a word from You. And may we be obedient Christians, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Seven words of Jesus spoken from the cross in His last dying minutes. And this word today, it is finished, is one word in the Greek. Tete lestenai. It means not only finished, but it means complete. It means fulfilled. It means the kind of thing that one would say at the end of a race. Almost triumphant. The way that theologically uh, scholars have talked about this moment in Jesus' life, this moment where He declares when it is finished, is as Christus Victor, which is in the Latin meaning Christ our victor, our one who has gained victory for us. As has already been said, He does this, He says this, um, as part of fulfilling the Scripture. He says, I thirst in order to fulfill the Scripture because remember again from the Mark reading, they tried to give Him wine before He ever was crucified. Maybe in order to lessen the degree of His suffering. And He did not take it. Now, on his own terms, he says, I thirst. And he takes this sour wine or this common wine uh, that would have been around and drinks of it. And then he says, after receiving it, it is finished. And he bows his head and he dies. This is the moment of Jesus' death. You see, in Jesus' death, in this moment we have here in these few verses... Jesus is finishing, He's fulfilling 
the Scripture itself. All of the Old Testament, you know, that big portion of your Bible that's tough to read through, that whole thing is coming to a point in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that Israel was created for, everything they longed to be and never could be on their own, was happening in this one Jewish man, Jesus Christ. It's almost as if, you know, at the, at the point of every, you know, there's a lot to maybe an arrow or a missile, but at the head is a point. Jesus is that point of impact. And the explosion that occurs when this moment happens, you know, when the arrow enters the tree, or when the missile hits the ground, the explosion that occurs changes history forever. You see, He not only fulfills all of the Old Testament, but also makes a way for the New Testament to be written. Which again, what holds this Bible together, even though mine is not doing so well right now, is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and what the New Testament is pointing toward. So both are pointing to Him. He is in the center. He is the head. Just as in our creed, the center part, the center person, is none other than Jesus Christ. And so too in our own lives, Jesus must be center. You see, the reality is this. In our own life, there are things that are unfulfilled. And only He can fill, only He can fill them. Only He can fulfill them. Just as we talked last week, I thirst is more a declaration that Jesus is saying, I thirst for you. I'm doing this for you. It's been done by scholars before, but they've taken every prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament and listed them all out. All the ones that we know about at least. And can find and verify. And there's been then mathematicians, what they do best is uh, calculations and probability. And it's literally impossible to be able to fulfill every one of these promises that were given in the Old Testament in one human life without something extraordinary happening. Because many of the prophecies don't even depend on the person doing things. It depends on other people, other historical events that are out of reach of the person. And yet Jesus Christ fulfills every one of them. It's a miracle of miracles. Everything happens on cue. (laughs) And even in His last words He says, I say this, in order to finish fulfilling the Old Testament. You see, it wasn't on their terms that they gave Him drink. It was on His own terms. It wasn't on their terms that they killed Him. It was on God's terms. Even in the dying moments of Christ, He was still in charge. That's the reality. He wasn't allowing man to take his life from him. He gave his life for mankind. 
the distinction is worth chill bumps. It's worth contemplation this week. He is triumphant. He doesn't die a weakling. He dies in full strength, full capability. That any moment, He could have called thousands of angels to end the whole thing. And yet He didn't. Why? Because of you. Because of me. He suffered, died for us, and that becomes our salvation. He fulfills God's Word, but He also fulfills here God's will. What Isaiah tells us is it was actually God's will to crush Him. It was actually God's will for Him to die for the sins of the world. He was condemned for our sake. And what Isaiah says, which is so powerful and has been quoted many times, is that by His very stripes, by His wounds, that we find out in the New Testament, He chooses to retain. He could have done away with them when He was glorified. But He chooses to keep the wounds of our salvation, the marks on His body, the scars on His body. He chooses to keep those to remind God Himself and to remind us, as He says to Thomas, reach here, touch here, look here of this suffering, of this death, of this salvation. (laughs) It's the mystery of mysteries that through the most horrible event in human history, the most notorious murder in all of our literature, comes the greatest salvation of mankind. Sometimes it has to get dark in life. You have to go through dark times. All of us have been through dark times. This was the darkest of times. Even creation proved that when it turned dark in the middle of the day. The sun eclipsed. I can't help but think of the only kind of illustrations I know of, and that is normally through movies because I like and enjoy watching movies. I think of the Lord of the Rings. I think of that dark moment when it seems as if all of the oryx and all of the evil things that could come out of the ground have taken over. They have an army that makes the other army look so weak it's laughable. They've already breached the wall. They've already infiltrated everything like, a, like when you step in an ant bed and you can't stop the movement of all those ants. And yet, what they choose to do is to hope against all hope. <laughs> in the darkest hour of Lord of the Rings, when everything seems to be lost, they hope. And I love when they ride out and they just begin to win the battle and of course, you know, Gandalf the White comes from the other side and you know the, the ships come in and everybody converges all on that one. This is that point 
Why does that well up in us when we watch it? Why do we want to stand up and say, man, I wish I could ride out with them? Why? Because of this event. Hope means nothing if this doesn't happen. You see, when an author catches a glimpse of hope, as they do in The Hunger Games, which is a newer book and movie that's out, you'll remember that if you've seen it, President Snow is very careful not to give them too much hope. Because too much hope will cause a rebellion. Or think of The Matrix, who some of you may have seen. In The Matrix, they create a matrix to trick your mind. But in the first Matrix, they don't put any hope in it. It's just everybody's rich, everybody has everything they need, and nobody believes it and whole crops are lost because they wake up. They don't believe it. We don't believe a story that doesn't have hope. Even if we have everything we want, which is in the Hunger Games, what they want is bread and entertainment. So as long as they have food and entertainment, just like in Rome, they, they called it in Rome, bread and circuses. As long as the government provided bread and circuses, in other words, food and cheap entertainment, people were distracted. They didn't care about anything else. I think of McDonald's and television. As long as we have that, what else do we need? And we're distracted from the core of life by bread and circuses. Panem, which means bread in Latin. You see, those stories and maybe others that you've read, whatever captures hope, whatever good story there is out there, always has sacrificial love. Why? Because that's what makes a good story. No good. We don't talk about stories where the guy runs away from the fight as a coward and lives his days in fear. We never stand up and applaud those movies. No, instead we applaud acts of valor. Why? Because this is the greatest of acts here. God Himself laying down His life and by doing that, creating hope for all mankind. It's because... Those stories are pointing, even if the author doesn't know it, to this story. Because all of His story finds its point in Christ. Your story of your life has no meaning truly if He is not the point. That's why we call it being lost. You have a story. Everybody has a story. But most people don't understand their story. They have no meaning to their story. They're just living it out. Only He can bring things into focus. Only He can make things make sense. Only He can bring true light to our life. Only He is the actual path to life. 
You see, it's not that Jesus just provides a path. His body, His blood is the path to salvation. It's only in the body, in the person of Jesus Christ, that salvation is found. It's not just in a book. It's not just in a building. It's not just in a prayer. It's in a person. God filled all of salvation down into that one point, that one person, Jesus Christ, on a cross, dying for you. That's hope, my friend. This is the greatest story of all time. It makes any other story enjoyable. They're only glimmers of this one. You see, He's offering us this morning salvation in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. We're going to have a bonfire Friday night. And you'll notice that once I get the fire going, it seems like the fire is winning for a while with the wood, you know. Especially with the two Christmas trees that I plan to put on there, that one is, well, they're both very old. Um, They haven't had water in who knows how long. And they'll burn up in seconds. And it's going to be a fireworks show, and the kids will love it even though Jessica will continually tell me to get them away and not do that. But you'll notice that down at the bottom of the fire, after the fire wins for a while at eating up the, the wood, you'll notice that there are things called coals that are the hottest parts of the fire. And if you were to ever pick one of those up, you would notice... And observe that the fire and the wood actually become one at that point. You can't separate them. Maybe before you could separate them, there's not much damage done to the wood like when you stomp out a fire real quick. But after a while, the fire and the wood become one. It comes something else. Something not itself. Which is exactly what Christ is offering for you. He wants you to become something you can't become without the fire of the Holy Spirit. I think it's coincidental that He comes on the day of Pentecost in tongues of fire. He's the fire of God that burns away the outer, burns away the hardness and the scaliness of our lives. Just as in the Chronicles of Narnia, when Prince Caspian, when in Prince Caspian, the boy who turns into a dragon because truly that is his character to not let anybody in, anyone near with this hardened scale. Aslan has to rip through and tear through in much pain to get back to the boy himself who no longer is a dragon but has moved from that scaliness, that hardness into a new life in Christ. In Christ. In Christ the same way that when I'm in the country, I notice that 
there's barbed wire fences that have grown into a tree. The tree itself absorbs the barbed wire to where you can't separate the two without killing one. You either have to cut the barbed wire or cut the tree. They've become one. So too, we can be in a way in Christ, in the vine, just as Jesus says in John 15. You are to be in me and I in you and I'll produce much fruit even though you're a barbed wire. He can take you in and make you something fruitful. Have you let Him do that in your life? He can. He can do it this morning. What better day than on the first day of Holy Week to get right with God, to find your life in His story, to be truly in Christ, transformed, not your own, one with God. One with God. One with God. That's what He has provided. Reconciled to God in Christ, Paul says. It's what he's offering. It's why he said triumphantly from the cross, it is finished. It's done. Today, the Word is the Word of triumph because He as the Bible says, Paul says, He showed up the enemy on this day. They thought they were winning. They thought the forces of evil had darkened the whole world, but they left one little spark alive. And that was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the spark of life itself. The breath of God. The wind of God. And Jesus Christ, who is our salvation in the flesh. What a powerful day. What a powerful week this is as we think about Jesus and His cross. The body that He laid down for us. And what better way as an act of worship than to partake of His very body and blood this morning. You see, on the night 